Welcome to Learning CDH, the podcast dedicated to teaching you everything you need to know about Competitive Commander. I'm your host, Matthew, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Eric. And today we're doing the um, fan favorite topic that we do, and that is the quarterly update. We're looking at July through September and going over the best performing decks at events that had 64 or more entries and talking about what decks did the best, what decks, um, mainly what decks did the best. We'll, we'll talk about a couple that, uh, a few that have kind of fallen down a little bit, but for the most part, we're just gonna be covering those top 10 decks that have got the most um, entries into top 16. And then we're gonna be covering their conversion rate there. We'll look a little bit at their top four conversion rate and decks that have won, but um, yeah, this is this is always like the fun thing that we that we look forward to. This is one of my favorites to look at because we get to like actually say no, no. Was there a Mardu summer? Yeah, a little bit uh, and, and really dispel some myths and just dive into like what is actually happening in CDH, not just what we feel like is happening. Yeah, so all this is very possible by a particular software. I believe it's called Command Tower that lets us look at all these sweet decks and they even have the metagame breakdown on these so you can actually like go to a tournament pull it up and it's like a top the top left you can see metagame breakdowns you can click on that and it lets you know like how many like versions of a particular commander was played so uh big shout out to um that software i'm i'm a fan i mean i think everybody should use it because it's just so convenient but some are opting not to some very large events that are, are being ran surprisingly without this very smooth and useful software that you can get over at uh at eminence's website um but for the most part reasonable people are using it and so if you want to follow along the because sometimes we get a lot of comments of like where do i look at this info um and you'll find a link in the description but we're going to be on edhtop16.com and uh, there's a lot of filters that you can use um, to look at decks. So you might just want to browse around on here a little bit, pause this, and then just see if you haven't been on the site. It's an awesome site. Uh, and we're going to go to tournament date. And if you're watching this, if you set it to the 1st of July uh, events after that of tournament size 64, you'll end up with exactly what we're looking at. Um, if you look at this a little bit later when some decks are updated, it might look a little bit different for you. But yeah, that's what we're going to be looking at. And we're going to be going through down to number 10, all the way up to number one and talking about the decks that have done the best. And we're going to, we're not really here to give you our opinion on these decks and whether they should be here, but really more, we're going to try to make sense of these numbers. These are the facts of what decks are performing well, whether we like it or dislike it or have any other opinion on the list. And we're going to try to explain why that is. If, you know, if you've watched the other episodes of this, you know exactly what we're going to be doing here. Yeah. So super seamless like process. It's something that we've been doing for a little bit. So if you're new to the channel or you don't understand, like, well, why are they doing a quarterly review? So the one thing I've noticed is like people get really caught up in like whatever's hot in a month. And that's not to say that those decks aren't doing very well or that they're not good, but seeing a quarterly view, you allow to see some like rolling data come in and actually see like what the trends look like and where decks are going. Was that deck just performing really great in July? Did it continue on? Did it taper off? Was it as, you know, a precipitous drop down? So just having like a quarterly view, plus it coincides with more set releases. 
So again, it allows us to kind of like catch a deck and or a series of decks to see that fallout from those sets. Like when we did our last one, we kind of ended it in June, which we just got the sprinkling of Bowmaster and the One Ring. So, you know, from that set and also too, just looking at cards like Born Upon a Win and how that affected that. So now when we go back, we see that those cards have had a pretty big impact or at least they're filling up slots and decks and like upgrading decks. So we're seeing it now over the last three months since July. So now we have more data to pull from. So that's why we do it this way. If you don't like it, oh well, <laughs> you know, it just it just makes it really simple and gives us a larger sample size. But, you know, we'll also kind of just mention when we get to the end, hopefully we'll just kind of like, hey, this is what happened in September. Shouldn't take that long. Uh, there is one big surprise in there. So. And the the way that the data kind of shakes out will depend on what happened sort of outside of just CDH, where um, if a big new set comes out, like when Modern Horizons 3 inevitably drops, that's going to have an impact on that quarter and it's going to shake up things as it goes. For the most part, this is really a continuation or like a, a finalizing or just like a refinement of the same meta we basically covered on the last quarterly update there haven't really been new commanders injected and like the same cards are still legal um other than like i guess we got doctor who but i don't think any i think that card just got legal at, uh in the filming of this so but for the most part this is going to just be what has happened and where have cards like orcish bowmaster um lotho things like that the one ring sort of shaked out and where they ended up um in in those months post like cookout ish meta leading up into uh the next big event which will be top deck expo brought to you by our amazing sponsor eminence gaming the command tower software by eminence gaming is perfect for hosting your own tcg events with features such as easy to create event registration for four player and 1v1 swiss based games Event management has never been so simple, and it's web-based, so no downloads required. Sign up for just $5 at eminence.events slash subscribe. But with all that being said, we can just hop right into it. So the numbers we're going to be looking at here are the raw number of top 16s that a deck has. That's what these are sorted by. Um, and that is sort of compared to the number of total entries, and that's weighed to give you a conversion rate. So... For instance, the first deck we're looking at is Yuriko the Tiger Shadow at number 10, which had seven top 16s out of 29 entries, leading to a 24.14% conversion rate. Pretty good resurgence for this deck, right? Like, would you say this is like the blue-black version of Kennen? No, it's not as good. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, oh. it is so... It's definitely been, this has been one I've noticed because I have um, like a Yuriko player in my friend group who likes to just like kind of experiment with with the list and is always looking at new decks. And I just noticed that like around cookout, I was like, oh, there's actually like a Yuriko top 16. And then like, it's just been happening more and more. Like every time I see it, I'm just like, oh, hey, look at this, another Yuriko list and I'll send it to him. So this is one I definitely noticed was trending up and I don't know why. There's a lot, I would say that this is a very grindy set of 10 decks that we're looking at for the most part. Um, especially if you look at like top 16s and top fours, what tends to do well, um, especially at larger events. And I think Yuriko does really well in those environments when it can kind of get going. The problem that Yuriko often faces is that the first two turns, you're pretty much, you're a controlly deck that's tapped out because you're so um, reliant on 
setting up that early Yuriko attacker, going to the next turn, tapping out to ninjutsu out Yuriko. In a environment where it's like super hostile to that, where like turbo decks are running rampant, it's a little tough. But if you get to the point like the mid to late game, the one thing that Yurko does have in common with Kiden is it reaches a critical mass of just like if we don't fully wipe the board, we're going to all die. And we're not going to be able to stop it with stack interaction or any other sort of thing other than just win on top of it, um, which is hard because they're going to be drawing lots and lots of cards and dealing lots of damage and making your ad nauseum useless. So I, I think it's really just kind of showing how if the games play out a certain way that if a, com- a commander like Yuriko hasn't really gotten new cards since Kamigawa other than like Bowmasters. And so it's really, I think, just showing that the meta currently probably favors Yuriko and maybe some of the play patterns that other people are having are just lining up with Yuriko. Yeah. So also, like, I know Yuriko typically has like a lot of fluff in the deck, you know, because of just the way the deck's designed. But ultimately, it's a bunch of free counter spells. Yeah. It's got a Thoughts Oracle combo into it. It runs just happens to run really good cards like a like Bowmasters, Oppo, Dalthy Voidwalker. I could probably see Talon potentially in this list. I haven't looked into Yuriko like that deep, but that card's pretty powerful in itself, the way it's been like lining up in these like mid-range decks. But I just think Yuriko just really takes advantage and it's like one of the few true tempo decks in the format. So yeah, there's not really anything super crazy going on. You, I, when you called it the, it's almost more the Demir Niv Mizzet than it is than Demir Kinnon, but it's a little bit of both. But it is just so jamming fun. so much free interaction, and it gets paid off for it. Unlike, which Niv kind of does once Niv is developed, but it's so much easier to develop Yuriko. Like yeah. you just get paid off for. You flip a Commandeer off of Yuriko, you know that is a big payoff, and also you let everybody know like, hey, if you go for a win. I'm going to have something to do with that. Yeah. So the only reason I said is the Demir <laughs> Cannon. It's just because it's a barrier to entry deck. Like it's one of those like really good beginner friendly decks of uh, like Cannon itself that just also happens to translate decently in the competitive realm. So that's the, that was my really only oh, true yeah. comparison. But it definitely does. And I think it having kind of like what I talked about that it has that easy play pattern of just like Turn one, I know I do this. Turn two, I know I do this. And then it kind of branches off. That's where like a lot of the skill starts to come into it. Because I, I do think it's probably not the easiest deck to take into like an event to to top 16. It's probably not that like just doing the Yuriko thing. Sometimes that'll work. But you're really going to have to pick your spots. Because like I said, like when you're tapping out that much, because it is sort of tempo-y, you have to know when to use that free interaction. And um, it, it looks like maybe some pilots have decided to like really focus up and have been able to turn that into more results. Yeah. Good job for the the Yuriko pilots. That's pretty cool. But at number nine, we have the only deck that matters because it's it, it fits the narrative <laughs> of Mardu Summer. That is the Hada Binder of Wills with also seven top 16s, 28 entries for a slightly higher conversion rate of an even 25%. Sweet deck. Had a lot of innovation on it. Dihana is a really interesting ad nauseum deck because it's like it's like chunky nas. You know, that's that's when you look at it. Like it's the one that really tries to go. I don't care about my, you know, my CMC or CMV, whatever it's called. And I care about the card quality over everything because Dihana produces a tremendous amount of mana. And it's like, you know, it's able to really abuse cards like like Magda or Magda, whatever you want to however you say it. Um, 
to go get like a ball assisted at all those type of things, but it can just cast these cards like relatively easy. And so when you can like, you know, play like Dihada on turn two, and one of your payoffs simply is something like a Beseech the Mirror or the One Ring. And that's like opposed to Ad Nauseam and like Bolus the Citadel. So it just has like these like really high payouts and getting obviously access to the White Silence effects and removal. That's that's something I think people need to consider when they're talking about White. Because everybody always says, oh, White gets silence, you know. You know, and that's great. It's true. It gets all the good silence effects. It gets Esper Sentinel. But like the removal and White is by far better than anything else. Like, you can't argue with how good, like, Swords and Path is, like, versus the field. Like, when you look at, like, red decks or even black decks, you're kind of, like, having to pick and choose. Like, oh, do I run Fatal Push? Or do I run Dismember? Or do I run Lightning Bolt? Or do I, like, is there, like, do I run Rending Volley? Like, there's no, like, automatic, hey, these are the de facto two best cards that answer any size creature threat in the format, and it exiles it. So... That's something I just want to say, like playing white gives you that access to not only like great, great creatures, good silence effects, as well as having like really good removal on top of it. And some good toolboxy cards like Oswald Fiddlebender or Portable Hole. Again, great removal. Like that card is fantastic or out of time, you know. So that's one of those things that I've noticed that like some of the that some of the decks we're going to see, like one of the decks we see like later on, that's like creature base, like out of time is really good against that. So I don't know. What do you think about the Hada? It, it clearly did pretty well. I, I want to touch on the removal thing too, because white removal is one of those things that is sort of been like literally alpha did it like one of the best cards ever for in terms of it, but it's still gotten cards that are relevant recently. Like touch the spirit realms is a, is a huge one being able to um, get rid of something for the turn without even having to cast the spell if you channel it. March of Otherworldly Light, also like a playable one. And we saw some people on a uh, card that exiles and you can recast it for two more mana. I... Uh, Soul Partition. Soul Partition. So like it's been getting, and that's like red is not getting a lightning bolt level thing. Black hasn't really gotten a top tier removal option other than like cut down, which is still sort of like, more situational than a lot of the, these white cards. Yeah, worse than Fatal Push, probably. Yeah. If you're slanting more proactive, you kind of need the ability to, when you're deciding to go off, you need to be able to get rid of those things that are stopping you. You don't have, like, a Psych Rift to do on the end step in Mardu. So having those instant speed, like, oh, here's a way that I can deal with it, especially if you can back that up with, like, silence effects again, very good. Um, but yeah, Dahada is just, like, it does so much on, for mainly one, one of, it's a Planeswalker with three abilities, Mainly it has one ability, and that ability does so much. It fuels your breach, it generates mana, um, it allows you to generate card advantage if that's relevant. Like, it has the option. The deck runs so many incidental legendary cards that you can choose to put into your hand. Um, it gives you a really good breach outlet with Flicker was one thing we saw, like uh, Lauren or MTG Hot Dog, I believe was the one who came up with that, or at least had uh, one of the first results of this quarter with it. As just like another way to win with Breach. You just keep flickering to Hada, you keep milling, you make treasures along the way. It basically is like another Lion's Eye Diamond that doesn't require you to discard your hand. So it is really just a commander that offers a lot. The pip intensity of the commander is sort of relevant when you first play it and you're like, wow, three color deck that can't use Jeweled Lotus, lol. But, um, or not as effectively at least. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strong deck. It has that... It has a lot going for it as a proactive list, but again, it also has like like you're talking. If you're just sitting around and getting up like uptick and then downtick the Hada back and forth, 
you're really setting yourself up for like a long game to be able to go off. And again, if you just do a lot of this, people are developing stacks and then you just slam down and out of time and then just go off and you have this massive graveyard that you build up. You have like a lot going on for you if you're like a shrewd enough pilot to kind of know how to navigate those uh, scenarios. Yeah, and I just think a lot of the uh, like Tim Jessica players, they really gravitated more towards Tejada because it does, it offers a lot of the same elements that all those decks have. Granted, you don't have the Timna attackers, but what you lack in that, you make up for with the combo potential of Tejada and just the overall speed of the deck. And it still runs like relatively like 75 to 80 of the same cards, you know, give or take like some like, you know, are you on the Saras and like Tim Jessica or you're, you know, because you're not probably playing it, you're probably on like Dragon's Rage Chandler or something like that, you know. But yeah, Tejada, pretty good Turbo Nas deck. And and again, it has the ability to just plant one of these like sticky pieces, kind of like a Necropotence or one, uh, the One Ring, those type of cards, and just like start trying to like grind like cards. But of course, it's it ultimately just has that ultra explosive ability to just do the turbo thing. So you know, pretty solid deck. I'm I'm very I'm very shocked to see that not that the deck's doing well, but that it has like. Like Marty Summers, like this is part of Marty Summer, but we're gonna see like, does this deck continue? Yeah, like that's gonna be the really interesting. That's that's why we love doing these updates, is because does the deck continue? You know, we know we have like some pretty competent pilots on. I know Zane was on Dehada, but Zane opted to go back to Rockside. And MTG Hot Dunk's obviously been championing Dehada, you know, quite a bit. So yeah, pretty pretty wild to see. Hopefully, it continues doing well. People might have been expecting Temna Jessica to be in this spot instead of Dahada. Uh, I, th- I think like Temna Je- like I think this is Dahada's first appearance, and Temna Jessica was on the last one, or it was, it was tied around this position. And I do think Dahada offers like a more focused game plan that doesn't require as much building around it. You run a few cards that help you, you know, um, do more with Dahada, but you aren't like massively shifting your like the the card types that you even care about, like. If you're not running Timna, you don't have to run creatures you don't want to run. You, you're just not pushed in that direction to do more like a general game plan, which makes the deck a little bit maybe less toolboxy uh, than like the Chernobyl decks that are built to just win in any scenario. But it is like a very focused deck. Speaking of focused decks, this isn't really that. <laughs> Next, we are talking about Kenrith the Return King, uh, another deck tied with seven top 16s, 27 entries leading to a 25.93% conversion rate. It is good stuff. We've talked about, if you watched the last episode, that Kenrith isn't that good stuffy. It has like a a really nice um, support package of all of the good cards that you could want. Um, But there are, again, we we see like people go different directions with Kenrith, but that's what a five cut, that's like, what a gen, sort of generically good commander lets you do if, I mean, with all five colors. You can just put the things that you want in. Um, and it's a deck that's just like, it keeps popping up around this spot. Um, it's just keeps doing really well. There's a lot of pilots that are messing around with it. Uh, you have slightly more proactive slants. You have very reactive slants. You have very creature combo-y focused ones. There's, again, there's, there's really not that much to talk about with Kenrith. It is very much just, hey, I have a big dude in the zone that I can dump infinite mana into and win and it lets you do it any way you want you get to reanimate stuff you can do mayhem devil you can do dead eye navigator whatever you want a meal dock side 
any manner of different ways that you want to combo and usually make infinite mana. Plus you get breach, ad nauseum, intuition, all that good stuff. One thing uh, uh, is the obviously the flexibility of it. It's a good jewel lotus. Uh, it's a great jewel lotus uh, deck because it just makes it so easy to cast it. And it's only like one white mana and it's a mana cost. But Kenrith is basically what to me is what replaced uh, the first sliver. You, yeah. you mean like the first sliver food chain deck, the underworld food chain deck with first sliver, which was like this five color good stuff. It was all about like this turbo plan that happened to have food chain in it as well, because that was like kind of like the backup part of it. That's what ultimately like graduated to. And that deck was really sweet. And I think Kenrith is just really the next evolution of that deck effectively with obviously not needing food chain. Um, so that's where I think that deck falls because now it's combos are a little bit more cleaner. You don't have to run like you just get to run like a meal and oxide. So it's a little bit easier that way. And the one thing I like about Kenrith is Kenrith doesn't have to commit Kenrith to the board until it's needed. Mm. You know, like you're still just turbo ad nauseum plan if that's what you're wanting to do with it. And then at any point, if the game gets gummed up, Kenrith is like this insane ultimate like breaker of the game. Yeah. So that's what I was going to say is like what really sets it apart from first sliver is with first sliver, you basically don't have a commander. You you don't want to cast the first sliver if you're not about to win because just like five mana cascade, that's not a game plan. That's just a creature on the board. Kenrith is a thing that you can develop that is technically a combo piece, but isn't a must answer combo piece. It's not like you put a devoted druid into play or something. Um, but it can be a, a like a a relevant thing on the board. You can affect combat with it. You can draw cards with it. You can it can be a Thrasios. It can be a reanimation outlet. Um, there's a lot of things that it offers and it's way more castable than first lover. Um, and it's just a lot more relevant. And again, Eric and I have kind of talked about how food chain is positioned very strangely right now, where you're having to cast a bunch of spells, generate infinite mana, but you can't pay for Ristics or anything like that. Like you just, you have an infinite combo that doesn't really work in the way that a lot of longer games kind of tend to go. Kenrith doesn't even have to cast spells. Kenrith can win an instant speed. If somebody removes the combo, uh, the stacks piece that's stopping Kenrith from playing, it can win right on top of everybody without even casting a single spell. Super impressive deck. Glad to see it. Like, because we we talked about this deck, like uh, whether it was the last episode or the episode before, like, like I think people were sleeping on it a little bit. Yeah. It's like, man, that deck's like really sneaking up on people. So, and I know there's been some really good pilots playing Kenrith. So uh, good to see that Kenrith is you know you know still in the mix so. it's really one of those where I, like you could call it the kenrith effect where when people look at like top 16s their eyes just roll over all the boring decks that they've thought of as boring and so like rolling over kenrith and like oh slicer and rolling over all these other good decks and are just like looking at those but like kenrith is just the name that's always there so notably the last three decks all had seven top 16s there's a huge jump uh which we did not see in any of the previous updates going from 10, 9, and 8 up to uh, the next decks, like number 7 with 12 top 16s is a big jump. And there's more big jumps that we're going to see here. Like this is a a sort of lopsided top 10, whereas a lot of the last ones are really gradual. And I don't really know why that is other than maybe like the good decks are getting better and more refined. Um, I I don't really know what that means, but I mean, let's just talk about the deck and we'll see what, what, what we notice. This next deck... The way that Eminence displays these is a little weird because based on the stats, I think this really should be number six. 
because it's tied for top 16s, but it has a higher conversion rate. We're going to talk about them the way that they're listed for you know the ease of like viewers just following the list and it matching up. But um, maybe this should be number six. Take it with a grain of salt. They're so close. Statistically, you could view these as a tie anyways. doesn't really matter. Um, but that is Rogue Sigh Till You Die right there. <laughs> um, Rogue Rack Silas with 12 top 16s, 51 entries, leading to a 23.53% conversion rate. Thought the deck was trash. It's so weird that these bad decks keep ending up at the top of these lists. It's so strange. I, I, I don't understand it. So yeah, notably at the beginning of this quarter, so this is with a sort of almost like outlier event, maybe you could call it that. Uh, everyone was down on Rog side because the very first event that I think is in this quarter, or the first really big one, was the cookout, where no Rog Side's top 16. And everybody was saying that Rog Side was terrible and it's a paper tiger again, blah, blah, blah. And then immediately Zane goes and wins the very next event. Uh, he tops another event that he had the win, but... Um, misplayed or punted however you want to put it didn't see the line and so the deck is still good the deck is still great don't look at a single event don't even look at a single quarter necessarily and say and write off the deck but especially single event that is ludicrous the deck is very good this is one of the more consistent decks in the format it's one of only i guess now we actually have three decks i would classify as turbo in in the top 16 whereas previously like this has been like often the only turbo deck or along with Najila, one, one of the only turbo decks. And it does what it does really well. It's built to take advantage of the super consistency that Rograk offers. It's the best deck at countering spells in the early game. It's the best deck at powering out more mana than everybody else in the early game. You want to do a turn one Rhystic, you want to do a turn one Nas, whatever you want to do, mainly tending towards the early game, it's the best deck at doing it because Rograk just offers so much in raw advantage in terms of mana and um consistency yeah i've been a big fan of this deck and it's like no no surprise but it's also because you know just understanding the nuance of the deck and like fundamentally it's it's pretty cracked and for what roger offers the game and you know i get like some people it's just not their flavor they liked having their card advantage in the command zone but you're in blue you have access to rustic messic also you have access to the one ring which that was a great adoption of the deck because the deck is an excellent one ring deck in terms of being able to just generate tons of mana early in the game so you can just slam down a turn one one ring the games when you have like a draw engine in rock site you it it almost feels unfair trying to fight through them yeah you know like and it, it's it's it makes it really because like the tim necrom decks you know oh they don't have it you know whatever gets killed something like that but they have tim necrom to fall back on Roxite doesn't, but then when Roxite gets card advantage plus the mana reduction, it's pretty wild. Like that that now you're now you're really looking into like a, a pretty fundamentally broken deck in terms of like how it operates. So that's the thing about Roxite. And then obviously good pilots on Roxite really helps the deck out quite a bit because Roxite is one of those things where I think like you really do need a I don't want to sit there and say like a good player, but are a higher skilled player to understand the fundamentals of the deck. Also, just Storm is most people think you just go Burr and that's it. But in reality, Storm has, I think, a lot less window opportunity because, you know, it doesn't have like the Tenochrom effect of like being able to just kind of catch you back in the game, especially decks like this. So you really have to pick your spots and understand. And the biggest thing is, it has it is effectively what added three cards 
uh, for, from just Lord of the Rings. It had mm. Orcish Bowmaster, which was a great up to, upgrade for that deck because the deck was on like an oppo agent plan, but then realized like, no, we just want like a tutor in that slot, you know? And so the Bowmaster still allows you to be like proactive against stacks creatures, but then it has a tremendous amount of wheels in the deck. So it not only can like clear the way of other it, other creatures that are like causing issues, you know, particularly like Staxy creatures, mangle horns, those type of things, or whatever, mm. like the, the wild cannon players play. <laughs> But, you know, being able to just, like, Bowmaster Wheel is is a pretty powerful board wipe, which that's what the deck kind of struggled with because it was like, is it on Cyclonic Rift? If it's off Cyclonic Rift. It kind of has Cyclonic Rift built at home, built in that p- particular position. It got the one ring. It got Born Upon a Win, which I think is actually secretly the hugest upgrade for the deck because I think that card is ultimately insane in these type of, like, ad nauseum necro style decks so that's been pretty big and then i believe at least in my list but i've seen in like zane's and, and like bryant's list of grim tutor but just became beseech the mirror mm-hmm. which is like a pretty easy swap and it got mount doom yeah. as well yeah oh yeah oh yeah and mount doom so sorry forgot about mount doom which shouldn't be forgotten because again it's it's just a dual land 90 percent of the time but again late game if you are getting you know, like stacked out you just have this kind of like button that you can hit and like clear the board. So yeah, Rockside, good deck. Yeah, relevant. I guess some of those also relevant to Dahada. We kind of looked over with them getting um, Lotho, also a good Mount Doom deck. I got to activate Mount Doom in Dahada one time. It just totally blew everybody out and it was amazing. And it helps because that deck makes you just if you're not winning, you just make a bunch of treasures and leave them lying around. And the activation isn't that hard. Bowmaster being able to often kill the player is also really relevant if you're doing it on an instep or in response to the thing just being able to take out a couple blockers make a 22 22 and then smack into somebody you know smack into the control player the guy who has the stacks pieces whatever that isn't often how you're going to win a game you're not going to win with a token but it's going to you know shut down one axis of who's able to interact with you and then it's hard enough when three players are trying to stop the rock side which often will end up happening. That's the the trouble with the deck and the struggle you might find It's like a new Rockside pilot is you are the, when there's nothing in play, you're the immediate enemy. Everyone just assumes that you're threat number one because your deck is really fast and good and is absolutely, in my mind, favored in the early turns of a game. So that is, is a bit of thing you get over. But like Eric said, if you get that little bit of card advantage, your cards are worth so much more than everybody else's that you get like the highest density of mana production you're only running things that win you the game you're not often digging for like a force negation to stop another win attempt sometimes you are um but like and then again once you get that mana production at least you have a little bit of extra mana lying around and you're drawing lots of cards it makes it a little bit easier to have two pieces of interaction instead of just the one being able to go force of will and a fluster storm or something that makes it so much harder to get through all the uh, win attempts you're going to get to make because, again, this is a deck that can just push, 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 keep putting on win attempts. Uh, if all your stuff gets stopped, you know, you have a bunch of tutors in the graveyard. Oh, I found an Underworld Breach. Easy game, easy life. And one of the only decks that takes advantage of a card that should maybe be played more in Jessica's Will, absolutely broken when you have a zero mana commander that uh, if you can Jessica's Will into either a Breach or a Wheel often, that's just a win. 
and and the things that also like Rockside, and I promise we well, we're not going to talk forever about Rockside, <laughs> but the one thing that there's there's two elements I, I really like about about this deck particularly. Uh, one was the Bowmaster, but the the fact that the Bowmaster token, uh, the Orc army actually just gives the deck so much extra fodder mm. for its calling rituals, its diabolic intents, its Phyrexian tower, which that takes a lot of pressure off your Roger. So your Roger was the one that was obviously mostly getting sacrificed to those things. So sometimes it would cut your first guardian chips off or your deflecting swats off. But now you don't have that issue inherently. Like you have yeah. another outlet <clears throat> for those. You have another resource piece. And so I think that shouldn't be understated. And then the other one, it's like I'm double checking this uh, top six, top 10 list. It's easily the best Bergy deck out there, right? Like, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And Bergy's cracked. Like, <laughs> like Bergy is a card that we've discussed on like at least. And actually, I want to give like credit to uh, Drake Sasser on this. I think Drake on a podcast uh, with playing with power was talking about, we don't, I don't think we've seen the true upper echelon of like how, just how good Bergy is. And it's just like this card. That's like great storm engine on the front side, a great storm engine on the backside. Yeah. And uh, we all know everybody loves Bergy's backside. It's the best. <laughs> uh, I did see Zane recently and- just tweeted that Harnfell is his favorite card right now. And it feels so good when, when, there's so rarely a spot where Bergy, one part of Bergy isn't good. And then you're also in a deck, like we talked about, that has so much mana production. Four and a red, you know, can be a struggle in certain scenarios where mana is really tight. But in like a post nod scenario, the deck is just able to make so much mana that if you don't already get there, just slamming either the Bergy to help make a bunch of mana or the Harnfell to just draw the, essentially draw the rest of your deck. Very hard to lose in that spot. And it's also like yeah. a threatening piece that you can actually just develop that people aren't that likely to interact with. You can if you're just sort of sitting behind your, you know, uh, draw engine or you're just not ready to go yet. It is actually a card you can just develop to the board, um, kind of like a Wish Claw Talisman, which might be a little bit more likely you to counter. Just like a thing you can put into play that is going to just set you up for next turn where you just get to untap, have a Bergy, basically have doubled your mana probably. Uh, and it's just super good card. And if you've never beseech, if you never cast Beseech the Mirror into a Mnemonic Betrayal or a Yawgmoth's Will, like if the breaches, like let's say breach isn't the option for whatever reason, if you know they have Besage you or something like that, but being able to beseech into to a Mnemonic Betrayal is pretty wild. Like you know that it's it's again it's it's got a lot of upgrades to the list that was already really kind of revolutionized, but now it's got these just just way better upgrades and like and it fixes some of the issues or the like weaker points of the deck like i mean it's it's a pretty impressive deck it is like one of the decks that like you know like i know we joke about like me playing coral but like you know i play other decks but it's like one of those decks that sometimes i kind of go oh it's really hard to go back to john you know <laughs> it's like it's so much better but you know i rockside is a good deck and again i think it has uh a little bit lower floor for less experienced pilots, but its ceiling is clearly a trophy. So take take that information as you will. And what's wild is we didn't even mention these aren't new cards, but in this sort of time frame, we saw the adoption of 
both Grinding Station and Conqueror's Flail as sort of like accepted staple-ish cards of the deck that uh, we weren't really seeing even the last time we recorded. Like going into the cookout, those weren't cards you were seeing, but then right after that, the around like Surfside, that was like something Zane adopted. And then we've seen like most of the decks now are adopting one of, if not both of those cards. Just grinding Station just obviously giving the deck like a little bit like denser win con, you know, because I think there's a balance in like a lot of these decks where you can have like jam-packed full of win cons to where it dilutes your deck. But ultimately when you like put in like a Grinding Station, Grinding Station also just happens to be like really good for your Breach plan and you're already playing a ton of artifacts anyways. So again, it's just one of those cards that, you know, smoothly like gets added to the deck and you just feel like it's been there the whole time. It's it's really interesting. All right, I think we did enough on Rogside. Clearly we like the deck, but also in our defense, that was a lot of cards that have come into the expected like tool like list of staples of the deck like we're talking about like nine eight or nine new cards that weren't getting played last time we updated that are now like that's like a huge change in three months for for like the expected deck list of a very established cdh deck that's been around that top five top ten level the entire time we've been doing this series and again like we mentioned and we're about to mention with our next deck this deck is clearly like if we we could i would say with this version of the list with the way that the top 16 sort of worked out where there's these big gaps this is like clearly in an like the next tier of decks above the last things that we saw at least for this quarter uh with nearly double the amount of top 16 and next up on our list with 12 top 16s 55 entries for 21.82 percent conversion rate again slightly lower than rock side whatever they're basically tied that is atraxa grand unifier the only half decent food chain deck in the format. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Don't don't tell the Tali players that. They'll they'll come at um, you. The green red Tali players. They'll, I mean they're gruel, so they can't read. So probably, oh god. <laughs> I'm joking. This I, I can't read either. I play John. This is a deck that kind of got the Tivit treatment at first, where people were kind of like iffy on it and kind of like you know, is it a meme? Blah blah blah. Too much mana. Um. But that we were kind of spotted, I think not in the last episode, but the one before that, that like this is a deck to watch out for. And then last episode we saw it was hovering, I think a little bit lower, I want to say, but somewhere around this mark uh, of just like, no, this is like a deck you should look out for. Um, We saw going into like cookout, one person played it. So it it was looking like Atraxa, at least in just like just July, wasn't doing as much. But like, no, we've seen like this is a deck especially that seems to pop up, made some waves at um, the SCG con uh columbus and then also it seems to pop up a lot in the online events mainly again this is sort of a four color good stuff ish list it's not running red so it doesn't get to run the best stuff uh but most of it, like it's a lot of staples it tends to go grindier um it's not really trying to turbo out a track cell though it is a thing you can absolutely play like turn two attraxa if, if things line up for you but it's really just looking to establish like mana dorks and value engines in the early game. It runs slightly slower engines, uh, things like Smothering Tithe that a lot of decks aren't running. Uh, this is a deck that gets to take advantage of cards like Lotho and just sort of get advantage going throughout the game and then get to a point where it can usually either just combo out with Teferi Displacer Kitten or combo out with Thassa's Oracle Demonic Consultation or... Uh, setting that up with Atraxa and Food Chain. Yeah, so this deck is pretty much like, to me, supplanted uh, like Timna Thrasios. 
And when you look at like the obvious, like, cause if, if you were to like look at those decks, they'd be pretty similar overall. And, you know, there's like so many variations of like Timothrasios, you know, I don't want to like get into the, the weeds of like, whether on like Hermit Druid or like Razakats or whatever. Hmm. By the way, um, I had a Razakats build of like Traxa. It was super sweet. Been able to like Eldritch Evolution or really Neoform, like your Traxa after you got all this value off of it into like a Razaketh was like pretty disgusting. So that was, that was pretty fun. I actually really enjoy that deck. Um, but when I look at a Traxa and what a Traxa can do, versus those other decks like those type of the, the thrasios decks that are in the same color pie is that you're spending four mana to do the card thing you know like to like spin the wheel attracts is just like hey reveal 10 probably draw four to six cards every time mm-hmm. and a seven seven creature that's on the battlefield that can take that's going to take over the board and plus it has like a salad bar of abilities. You know, it's going to be able to do the life race really well because okay. it's lifelink. Yeah, it takes over combat. Yeah, it's just it's it's such an impressive card. Obviously, it's really impressive in constructed formats, but to see that card come here and like it really does just turn the table quicker than those decks. So while we look at like some of the like, you know, clunkier cards in it, the deck is really devoted to mana. So it has tons of mana options into it. So it's not trying to like short itself on being able to like cast this. So it understands its role. Whoever the 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 minds behind attracts it, they understand the role of the commander. They want to make sure they can cast the commander. And ultimately, it is what it has a Thassa's Oracle combo set up in it. It's really easy, elegant as a finisher. So it has all these like like kind of like nice elements. So it can grind. It can just do the whole tutor silence thing, lock you out and win. Uh, it has the ability to take over combat. It has the just out of nowhere food chain combo with the Traxa. So yeah, overall, like really impressive deck for what it's doing. And I think people just gravitate towards the Traxa too. Like, I think it's because it it's a cool card. It mm. looks cool. This is just my thoughts. But when people draw cards a lot, especially people who play blue, they feel way smarter than they really are. <laughs> they, they do. They just, it's just, I've just, people just feel smart. Like, oh, they're just so clever and they're the just plans all oh, coming together. Yeah. That's, that's, that's literally what it is. And I think this kind of like having the green and the blue mixed together. So it's got like a really like nice Timmy effect to it. And plus it's a follow-up yeah. to one of the most played and beloved commanders of all time. That was like, stuck which i think is relevant in terms of like people playing it choosing to play this commander was that uh, traxa had a commander that was stuck in high power or just like hated in lower power casual because it's too much but has no relevance in cdh whatsoever and then it got this commander that which it took a little bit of people figuring out what to do with in cdh but it absolutely clearly is a cdh commander good deck pretty and, cool and i I wanted to touch on the the Timnathrasios comparison a little bit because I was playing against this deck last night and we kept talking about it in comparison to Timnathrasios. And I think one thing that it does is Timna and Thrasios offer you a, a really good floor in the early game of what your deck is capable of. Where a lot of times when you're mulliganing, you're thinking like, at least I have like a turn two Timna. I have a turn one Thrasios, that, which is some sort of development, especially again, if you're playing like Mox Amber, stuff like that. It can be relevant. Turns on your fierces, stuff like that. 
But what often will happen in the early games, if things are going well for those decks, they're not developing Timna because or Thrasios because those decks really aren't the greatest thing that you can do with your resources or even often to generate resources, especially now as we see a lot of decks are very creature heavy. The best thing you can do, you'd rather be playing maybe even something like a Lotho that gets you mana, getting you towards your commander. Something like Aristic Study obviously is like the goal of, and something in this deck again is Smothering Tithe. So like often you're developing some sort of thing to develop your resources and Timna and especially Thrasios aren't really the best at that. And what Atraxa really offers you is a way to convert doing those better things in the early game into a much higher ceiling in the late game, which is like where Timna Thrasios wants to be. It wants to get to the late game, but it doesn't have that crazy payoff of boom, attracts the C10 cards, even start doing like manual food chain stuff of just like exile my three dorks, exile Atraxa, boom, play Atraxa again. And it has that like built-in payout of like, you did the things you want to do in the early game, you cast good cards, developed your dorks, got some mana, got some treasures, blah, blah, blah. And then boom, here's 10 cards. Here's your build your own ad nauseum. That may be why we're seeing it be better. Kind of like what we talked about with Dahada versus Tim and Jessica. Atraxa focuses you in more on a game plan. Whereas like we've talked about before, Tim Thrasios is just all over the place. Yeah, unless you're playing like those like specifically designed builds where they're like all in like our, on a reanimator package or like Hermit Druid and stuff. And then again, I still think we've, I keep saying like... <laughs> I really want to see like some more innovation because, you know, they have some really, you know, they have access to all the same colors and stuff. But I just think the payout on attracts is like way higher and you're not paying four mana to like scry one draw card. You know, I think the focus is even in like not even in the deck building. I mean, just in the commander attracts to ask you the question of what how how do you want to best take advantage of this super broken effect that I have? And Tim the Thrasios just asks you, like, what do you want to do with the cards that you draw? of you know sporadically throughout the game how do you want to best do this and people have often talked about like dorks don't work that well with timna and you know like they work better with thrasios like which game plan you want to go in and but i think like when you have however many pilots look at atraxa they're just like they have one question to answer and they just go well how do we do atraxa the best instead of like what's my brand of atraxa of like you know razikets hermadruid all this stuff they're just like well let's do atraxa the best that we can and let's Focus in on what it does. All right. Next up, still in, I guess, if we're going to break them up into tiers, still in the same tier, but with 13 top 16s and 60 entries, leading to a 21.67% conversion rate, we have Sisse, Weatherlight Captain, the cool five-color deck that we keep talking about every time, and I think is just even more cementing itself. Like last time we talked about, it was like almost a little sort of surprising to see it in the last one. I think that was its first appearance. And then in this one, I would have been surprised if Sisse wasn't here in, in this top 10 for this quarter because the deck keeps doing really well. Uh, it's, yeah. it's It just gets better. And this is a deck that we've talked about. Like, it's kind of hard to play if you, you know, like it has a very unique thing that it does. And so like as pilots keep playing it, the deck, I think, just keeps getting better and it keeps getting new legends like we talked about. They love printing 50,000 new legends into every set and one of them ends up in Sisse every time. Yeah, eventually Sisse is going to have to start like, you know, looking at cards of, to cut because they just can't keep, they just can't keep getting away with this. They just keep getting <laughs> Eventually they're going to print like legendary birds of paradise and it's like, oh, we get that. And then it's just like the whole creature suite will be legendary and they're just going to have to find some cuts. But as it is, it seems like they're just going to keep getting to swap in new things. 
I haven't pulled up a Sisse deck recently, um, as of like the, this recording. But are they on Delighted Halfling? So while he's looking for Delighted Halfling, I know Atrax is on Delighted Halfling. So my whole point was to not to piggyback off and, and bring up Atrax again, but again, having like a main deck mana dork that allows you to push through your, like your really expensive legend, because uh, nothing would feel worse than getting it Force of Will, but I think that's just a really good upgrade for those kind of decks. So what do you find? In- uh, so the deck that took down Festival of Nights, no uh, Delighted Halfling. This top deck from Mox Master September did was on it. Let's see, SCG Columbus with Ian, or he ran it. Uh, waiting on this website. Oh, it's melee.gg. Got it. So, so SCG, please just be normal. You don't have to do this. So if, if Ian's running it, then Ian did not run it. Ian chose not to run uh, it. Ian did not run it. So any, but anything that Ian does run, you should just t- <laughs> you should just roll with it. So like it looks the, like there's a little bit of of tension in it and maybe it's because like it is a five color deck and if your dork doesn't cast whatever like you know your delighted halfling doesn't help you cast valley of devastation well i guess it does whatever it doesn't do a pip doesn't help you cast your assassin's trophy boom we had we had an option doesn't give you colored pips so it didn't get that but i'm assuming and i see this in the deck list that i have pulled up pretty much all the decks are on agatha's soul cauldron which is one of this is the first deck we've seen that has widely adopted this new card that was like a really big, unique, new thing that a lot of decks, or a lot of players were really high on and is uh, doing a lot in other formats as well. Yeah, so oddly enough, on the Agatha Sold Cauldron, uh, Omnixilis, uh, every Omnixilis deck I've looked at recently has been playing that card. So I think that's pretty, that's a little side tangent Omnixilis? there. But yeah, Omnixilis has been, because yeah, it think about yeah. I think it's just more so because he already has the plus one plus one counter on him. So that's true. He's got a million of those. He's got a million of those. So you just basically I mean, they get a Dothy. I know that at least. Yeah, they get a Dothy. But I mean, just I think having it to, you know, especially stealing things like Ranger Captain or something like that, you know, it's probably pretty good. I think the card's pretty interesting. That is true. Um, it does get stuff from any grave. It's, the, the card does a lot. It's incidental graveyard hate, which is always good in this format. A lot of people don't get to don't choose to run like Craft Digger's Cage, for instance, because like that card sets off your own stuff. Agatha just gets you value on it. It lets you do kind of whatever these effects you want to do. If you need it to be Graveyard Hate, you got it. If you need to turn a bunch of your creatures into Birds of Paradise, you got it. Um, if you need to just be able to. I know this made uh, Walking Ballista lines more efficient than ever for decks like Heliod. Um, good card to watch out for. To get back to sound like the like for for us talking about Sisei, Sisei is just it's again it gives a more unique approach than just Kenrith uh, being the five colors. It's got a lot of nuance to it, and it's one of those where if you know the deck and you know your deck in and out, and you know like the meta really well, your your ceiling for this deck is probably really high because of the ability to effectively tutor you know, whatever you really need to. And it just, again, happens to just be five color good stuff. It also just happens to, you know, have some of the just easy, simple, best combos in the game. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about Sisse as a whole? Is it, it's just really impressive to me. And again, great jeweled Lotus commander, right? Like, you know, just cast it. Yeah. It, um, it's really notable. It's really hard to call it five color good stuff. I feel like you do get the, it's mainly the five color interaction package and tutors. 
But like they don't win with anything. They don't win with Thassa's Oracle. They don't win with Breach. They don't run ad nauseum. Like they they aren't doing a lot of what we would when you look at a, a high color pile like it like attracts a blue farm even a Gila. It doesn't do a lot of those things often. It is another one of those sort of like critical mass decks, but it's really sneaky. The cool thing about it, like when we get to Kenan, we're gonna talk about it. It can set up a spot where it can just hold up a lot of mana and then do the thing it needs to when it, when it needs to. You get to just like decide, you know what, if I have to hold up mana to be able to whatever, silence an opponent, flusterstorm, whatever, a braid even, rep decay, blah, blah, blah. You can do that or you can just like somebody does something, boom, cast this in response or activate to say nobody knows what you're going to get. That's one of the key things like, the difference between like, you know, this and four or two colors to say one, this gets all the good stuff, you know, all the good colors. Also, it just puts it straight into play. People cannot interact unless they have an off so agent. It gets, it's going to happen. So it gets good stuff and it has good colors. So is that not? It is good stuff. I just want to note good. in terms of how the deck wins and a lot like it runs eight planeswalkers ish. Like there's tons of cards you would not see in terms of like if you compare this to uh like Najila and Kenrith, like a lot of cards you're not gonna see. It's, it's run cool. They are good cards. You get to run cards like Tyvar. This is the only place you're gonna see Oko nowadays, uh, a lot of times. Um some of the lists are on Dahada, Amanatu. You have a big combo you do with um Nicol Bolas God Pharaoh or Dragon God, I think it is. So you get uh lots of cool little combo lines. The the one very good Relic of Legends deck, I think. Um, I keep seeing that card pop up in Kennen. I'm not really sure exactly how good it is there, but here you got a ton of legends, and this is like the best rock you can have. This some, sometimes is going to be like better than a Dockside in this deck. Um, but again, this is a deck that wins with Dockside. So you get to Dockside loop, you get to do Dockside, and also like um, Kenrith, a lot of times you can sandbag win. You can be able to just like instant speed. Somebody gets rid of the thing stopping you. We've seen this happen in tournaments. Boom, they didn't know your deck was able to go off then. Put a tutor on the stack, happens, put your thing into play, you get to win. We talk about how many decks are Secret Commander Kennen, but this is Secret Commander Kennen that its commander can just get Kennen and put it straight into play. So like you actually get that Kennen. You don't just have to dirtle around with your Thrasios for four turns and then until you find him. Um, so yeah, awesome deck. Easily one of the coolest decks, I think, in the format. Not that that necessarily equates to why it's on this list at this high, but... Um, this is one of the more unique decks in the format, I feel. And if you want something that just is totally different than a, a lot of how a lot of other decks work, this is like a great, powerful place to start. Definitely rewards good play and good understanding of your deck and your opponents. Next in our top four. So this is again where I would say like there's a, a substantial kind of jump. We go from 13 to 17 uh, top 16s. 98 entries for a 17.3% conversion rate, the lowest we've seen so far. And that is with the five-color Warrior Queen of Copium, Najila, the Blade Blossom, uh, the lowest that we've seen her since we started this. Uh, she has been, I believe, two in the first two episodes. Then she dropped to three behind Tivit last episode and is now at number four. And I think this is the only deck on here where I can very directly point to why a deck has fallen significantly. And that is because Memo didn't compete that much. <laughs> Memo stopped competing uh, for like two months, and now it's all falling apart for Najela. 
Yeah, I believe Mimo's on the T and K sauce right now. So we might not ever get him, get him back then. That's the that's the sad part. Um, you know, let's 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 legitimately talk about like why it's oh yeah you know, for it's sure still fourth, it's still in fourth place. It's still a obviously very powerful deck. I think there's uh, there's quite a few factors that are involved with its decline. You know, Memo, and I'm going to refer to the expert on this, Memo discussed, like, Orcish Bowmaster being one of them, and the other one potentially being, like, the One Ring, and just how the One Ring prevents, like, combat wins. But I would say Bowmaster is the larger of the two. The effects, playing against, like, Najeel myself with a Bowmaster felt really good. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was just like, yeah, sweet Najeel, until <laughs> let's just PPU it down, you know, effectively block with a token, PPU, or in response to, like, a draw effect or, you know, whatever. But... The Gila has kind of fallen victim, and just is from a, like playing like a me playing a lot of Storm, fall, is falling victim to a, the new card Shiny Centrum, and like every time like Wizards prints a new card, it's like you know it's the One Ring, it's Opposition Agent, it's Orcish Bowmaster, it's Beseech the Mirror, you know, like these big like you know one a few of those were two cut mana, but like really kind of splashy four mana three mana effects. And literally, the whole thing was speed needs no translation, right? So mm. when the deck gets away from what it's really good at, and it goes down a different path, it completely changes the texture of what the deck does. And people say that like four or five cards doesn't make a difference in a deck. That's so emphatically incorrect. Like that, I hate to sound so absolute on that. But if you take a deck and let's say the deck's based on mana dorks and I remove all those mana dorks from the deck, you don't think those mana dorks matter? You don't think they impact the speed of what that deck does? Playing all these kind of like, you know, bigger cards or powerful cards and stuff. We've seen like uh, the uh, Nauseless Najila deck win an event that was just on like the One Ring and obviously the other blue draw engines and stuff like that. But it still basically had all the elements of the speed mm. of what Najila does. Like Najila is a very good Nas deck. It has multiple layers to win the game. I, I just think that maybe going back to the drawing board a little bit and just buckling down of what the deck's really efficient at and then going from there versus like, you know, stretching the mana base or having to like force these all these big thicker like oh my gosh these thick thick creatures like somewhat i think oh god i've already fucked up my own thought i have a couple i have a couple thoughts now i will say that if um memo and a bunch of the other people who are testing najila very diligently and blah 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 that if they ultimately find that these cards that they've swapped they feel are worth it um in in their own testing and that maybe events just aren't shaking out that well for them then i'll agree with them that that they're i'll I'll say that they're they're correct on that if that's what they find there is definitely a cost to including cards like triple black pip cards like um seach the mirror and um necropotence into your deck and those again like when eric's talking about cards adding a couple cards not changing those are cards that they aren't something you can just kind of like ignore in your open i mean those are three and four mana very prohibitive mana cost cards that sit in your hand that have a real timing restriction on them you don't just cast necro because you can you don't just cast beseech the mirror because you can often i guess you could whatever four mana demonic tutor you can do that there's definitely potential for cards for things to be diluted Uh, we've seen cards like 
Similar recently come in that just like feel like must run. So like there's we've seen like Lotho gets pushed into the deck. There's definitely new things being jammed into the deck that absolutely change the deck, whether that's better or worse. We're seeing it trend worse, but the deck is different. And there's definitely enough cards that over the course of we're looking at uh, 98 entries where that's I would say large enough sample size for us to tell that something has changed negatively for the deck. Like Eric mentioned, Orcish Bowmaster is a brutal card for this deck. And where we're going to get to Kennen, which I think is um, one of the highest performing decks that also gets hurt by it. Um, but Sisse also gets hurt by it. And I think the difference between some of these other decks is Najila has no political power whatsoever. Najila is never the good guy. Ever. Najila is the only turbo deck that also is a creature deck. And if you can throw down your Orcish Bowmaster and incidentally kill some of their dudes, you're going to do it because it's super valuable. The Gila player doesn't care about you. They don't care about your family. They're just going there to win. They're there to cast, have Jeweled Lotus in their opening hand every time, and they're going to cast it. And so any bit of political power that a Kinnon player might be able to say, like, oh, I need this Birds of Paradise because I'm holding up uh, interaction to deal with the Najila player, um, they're going to do it. So you can't do... It's the only good stuff deck that doesn't have that ability to like even blue farm, which has like explosive potential has way more ability to politic in a game and say like, look, I get that I'm sort of threatening, but we can all agree this deck is the problem right now. And I actually run interaction to deal with them. I haven't swapped over to veil of summer and a bunch of silence effects to just protect my own stuff. Like a lot of the Najila decks have run They're more on those things. Like they might be running the, uh, the new Legolas card, split second green instant i don't know what it's called legolas's broken card uh that is just like hey my najila cannot die this turn no matter what there's literally not a card that can get in the way of this um and like that is a thing especially as we've been talking about where i think a lot of these we're we're maybe shifting a little grindier post cookout um at least in top four situate there's still very heavily grindy decks focused there's a lot of kenrith a lot of kenan Sisse is there a lot. And I think that Najila isn't grindy. Uh, the more you go, or as often now, without the very few number of like card advantage things it runs. Um, and we, I talked to Eric about this earlier, where Mimo was finding that he really liked running some of the older Najila, like Pongo style cards. And I think that's part of, it's related to this, that he liked the feeling of actually having one, a game plan that's not as focused as winning it early as possible because you lose political power. Two, an ability to have more going on in the late game where you have more cards that are relevant in the late game. And I I, I think that we're just seeing like maybe none of these things are devastating factors for Najila, but we just see like a lot of little things that are enough to bring it from third to fourth. And I think with a conversion rate this low, which we didn't see with Najila earlier, like I think... This isn't just like another deck did better because the deck above it also didn't do very well this quarter. Again, I always like to people who are playing the deck a lot more than me are in play testing against, you know, like I play against every time I play test someone in my play group plays Najila. And, you know, it's one of those things of where uh where Christian and I are talking and, and Christian's like always like struggling with like like all these new additions because he doesn't feel comfortable with them. Like, like I personally don't like Lotho in the list. Like Lotho just kind of makes you fetch weird, right? Like Mm. in the earlier in the game, like it may not, what if like the, like the way the Lotho lines up with the rest of your cards, 
Black it, and white's pretty prohibited earlier in that yeah, game. Yeah, because it the best things you can do early on in a five-color deck are often either the blue value engines, the red commander that you're running, or the green dorks, or something along those lines. This isn't Lotho doesn't line up with any of those cards other than like an Esper Sentinel is the only other thing where like you could turn one white land, you know, fetch for a white land, Esper Sentinel, turn two Lotho. But that's like actually something that kind of makes sense and, and something you might do and be reasonable. The rest of the early game cards and Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong in, in the comments in the Geo players. Don't really line up with it as well as like a deck that's trying to cast Timna on turn two or three. That lines up incredibly well with trying to cast Lotho on turns one and two. Yeah, I just feel like that there's some point in resource and then you would be like, well, the treasures that you make off Lotho, that's what you get to you know utilize. But there's still a cost to... It's not like you're going to hit your land drops every single turn. You mm-hmm. know, like there's a cost of fetching those lands earlier on. And one of the restrictions of the deck is being five colors and having to fetch and knowing how to fetch. Cause it's not like Sisay where Sisay gets the tutor, you know, for whatever mm-hmm. they want. So I just think that, you know, from just from a turbo's perspective, uh, like a turbo player's perspective, getting back to what make the deck like really formidable I think that's going to probably just give you the better results. And I just, I don't know, like, is, 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 you know, is it Orcish Bowmaster that's keeping you out of, like, winning? Is that seriously, like, one card, like, absolutely shutting you down? Like, I don't know. Like, if that's the case, then, you know, wouldn't just simply running extra piece of removal or your own Bowmaster help mm-hmm. with that? Maybe run Bowmaster over Lotho if that's the case. Because mana is never the problem of the deck, it has access to Dockside. Tutors, it's five colors. So, and I and I wonder too if moving away from um, what was the enchantment that it ran? It was the green, green one enchantment, Druid's Repository. Yeah, Druid's Repository. So I wonder if from like removing from that card also was kind of like maybe the start of you know kind of the identity of the deck changing. And mm. when they went away from that card, that did take away kind of the attack plan a little bit. And then you're moving into a Chatterfang, but like you have a card that could would basically combo with it. I don't know. I'm going to leave it up to the Najila experts. It's still a top deck. It's still up there for the quarter, but it's definitely on the decline. And that is something just to look at. I wouldn't be shocked if Memo doesn't break it once again, figures it out like the, the, the cabal, the cabal kids being really smart and stuff. So They'll they'll figure it out. I think they'll 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 tune Najila back up. So. I definitely think it's better to like over swing and just like try to do too much than it is to just be like we're never going to change this deck ever. So I think like the fact that they are willing to adapt a lot of new cards, are willing to change what is again one of the most established decks in the format, is not a negative thing at all. And I wouldn't discourage them from continuing to do that. It's just that maybe this quarter uh it didn't work out that well and so i don't think any of them are going to say like no we're just going to keep choosing to win slightly less and and stick with it because they seem like they're very willing to experiment and again this is a deck that a year ago didn't even look like this at all like this is a deck that's been transformed a lot and um i expect to see it continue to do well i do think there's just something to note and comment on with like okay well if the one ring and Bowmaster are keeping our creature attack plan not as good, then are we, when they call the deck five color Roxai, but it's having that creature attack plan and that ability to win 
having more ways to win than Rock'sai is kind of what makes that deck potentially better. And if those points aren't strengths of the deck anymore, then it's kind of worse than in Rock'sai in some regards. Uh, and maybe, like, again, you get slightly more mid-range or you change the way that you approach that or you just run things to be able to deal with, again, those creatures. Like, if some of your cards just aren't lining up with, you know, what's happening, then you got to experiment, and I'm sure that they will. Like you said, the the Cabal knows all, seemingly. <laughs> That's a good one. They should use that. The Cabal knows all. Next up, another deck that has been here quite often, Fallen only ever so slightly, and that is Tivit Seller of Secrets with 18 top 16s, 110 entries leading to the lowest conversion rate on this list with 16.36%. This is something we kind of expected as um, this quarter evolved. We kind of kept seeing Tivit do going from like top fouring and winning everything to like not that many of them in the top 16. And just seeing like what a lot of people thought was like an over like a an overly high adoption rate of pilots looking to grab the deck, expecting it to win, and um, not doing that well. I, th- I believe we talked about in the last episode how the deck was maybe getting too staxy, and that uh, I've talked to people who we I know we talked with that was uh, with Zane where he talked about how he thought that aggressively ish pushing for an early tivit and just slamming a win with your very easy one card win con was kind of the strength of the deck and that as players have moved away from it he expected that the deck wouldn't do as well and again this isn't a deck that has fallen off in any regard but it is not doing quite as well whereas it looked like i mean the, my prediction the last episode was i wouldn't be surprised if this deck was number one next time and it's still high up here but it hasn't performed nearly as well yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a good, it's powerful. It's like the one thing about like these top 10 decks and even some of the decks that are slightly below, they're all capable of winning. They've all, I believe they've all won or have topped an event that has put them in a position to do really well. So I don't want to sit there and sit there and be like, yeah, Tivit sucks. Don't play Tivit because that's not it. That's not what we're saying at all. I just think it's just, you know, it's really interesting that like, before this quarter, like Tivit was like, you know, 20, like high, one of the highest conversion rates. And, mm. you know, it was literally looking like it was going to like surpass Blue Farm in the terms of, you know, number of people playing it and actually just maybe taking down events. And that's just not the case, actually. So it's still a really powerful deck. It's a good deck. It has a great core of cards. I don't know. I I just think that as more decks evolve and shift, and we've had like a new like a new surge of a deck over the last three months that really kind of pushed Tivit down a little bit, and I think Mm. just because the ease ability to cast this next upcoming commander, and we'll get into more of that later. But you know, as Tivit, you know, like I said, we talked to Zane, and I even like rehauled my Tivit list a little bit because. You know, like everything, you like, oh, like the, the the answer to Turbo is to go more like Staxi, you know, yeah. and add all to the cards. In reality, it's not always the correct choice. Sometimes it's to lean back into doing what you're already really good at. And this deck has got tons of artifacts, produces lots of mana, slams the commander that generates lots of value. You don't inherently need as many value pieces, even though they're already built into the deck. You know, you've, you've got 
all the good black, like, safely creatures. You have access to the One Ring. You have access to, you know, Mystic Remora, Mystic Study, all those type of things. So I think Tivit's still a great deck. I just think it just, again, and it may be a little bit cleaner, cleaner deck list, you know, make it, just tune it up a bit. So I, I'll tell you whose list I really, really liked. Just playing in a chaos event, it was uh, Shawnee's. Ashani had a really sweet, a really sweet list. I think it was like twenty eight lands, but still ran like City of Traders as well. Again, for that like burst of mana, I think that kind of approach is like a really good way to play Kennen. I mean, I, or I'm sorry, uh, Tibbet. A spoiler alert, you know. Um, what do you think? Do you think uh, what do you, where, where does Tibbet go from here? Does Tibbet? still hover around that three to four mark. I think it's just because it's super popular and it's become like this safety commander for people to play. Kind of like how blue farm was for a little while where people just kind of like, ah, it's easy. I can just jam a tivet and, you know, incidentally win the game. Like you don't have to be no offense. You have to be an excellent pilot to play a turn two or turn three tivet, you know, and, and generate lots of card, you know, it's card like, advantage. It's like definitely become the most easy to recommend deck because like, a lot of the complexities that like Blue Farm has are kind of gone here. You don't have to worry about like Nas turns. You're not trying to do like tight breach lines. Like a lot of the wins are just pretty straightforward. I think maybe one place that they could look at is like trying to evaluate because you talked about like how do you beat faster decks? And that was sort of the thought of maybe why they run some of these effects like, you know, Graph Digger's Cage, all these other things. Um, I think we talked about with Najila, those none of those cards really line up necessarily with Tivit's own game plan. They just don't hurt it. They hurt other people's. But and we've talked about how, whether this is reality or not, that like it feels like if you want to do really well in a tournament, you need to be able to win, do well in those very sort of like typically grindy matches to be able to get into top 16, get to top four, get to the win. Those typically where we see like a lot of more grindy decks just tend to be up there. Like this was the case more so last year, I think, than this year, but still kind of the case. And those cards really aren't that great there, I don't feel like. I feel like if you want to win those matchups, getting a Tivit down, the best value engine anyone has in the command zone, getting that down kind of early is like the best way to just be better than those decks. Like if you slam down a Graph Digger's Cage turn one, Blue Farm doesn't care about that. They're not going to breach win in a you know top 16-ish scenario until they know like coast is clear, all the stuff is get got rid of, there's going to be a big fight over like an overloaded psych rift on like turn eight or something. And then that's when people are going to be like pushing for wins. Like, I don't think you have to necessarily push out all of these like asymmetrical ish hate pieces to win against the fast decks because you just kind of like just don't lose in the early turn. Like you're already playing Esper. You just have like a lot of those tools in the main set. Not that you can't play some of these, but like, like, Again, every slot in your deck comes with a cost, and maybe that cost of of the sort of slower game plan just isn't right. But then we did also see like so we saw like at SCG Con we saw like um, Callahan top forward with like a really grindy one with like Talion and Shieldred, which again aren't cards that are there to necessarily beat down the aggro decks. They're they are the aggressive turbo decks. They're there to just like decimate people in terms of value and went. So I feel like. That direction could be a good point. And I always think you should just run in, run cards like Nas. I don't, like, th- we've talked about this. The, the average converted mana value of Tivit cards is literally lower or around Rockside, depending on your list. It's 
not that high of an investment to put that in. I really like it. Maybe that's not the direction that you go in, but I feel like being able to win and knowing where your weaknesses are and where your strengths are and building accordingly is kind of is, is kind of the way forward. Whatever you expect to need to be able to beat, don't just jam in cards because you sometimes lose to Rogsai. I think if if it's going to hurt your other matchups, which maybe is the case here, maybe it's not. But um, that's sort of my non-Tivit player take on on some of the pieces. Because like the thing about a lot of those cards, even though they're good, is that nobody else runs them. You don't have like a lot of people rushing to run Graph Digger's Cage because like it doesn't do anything. It, it it's it's like null rod. It it does nothing. Um, <laughs> oh, the shot shout out to collector of players. Hey, is that weird? Is 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 there any collector roofs here in the top ten? Absolutely oh. not. Definitely okay. not. No. Uh, d- a really good point though is about the Italian and the children. While those are kind of four, yeah, the classic four drop grindy things. They also close the gap very fast. I mean, I don't know if you've played against Shildred a lot, but now you're having a compound effect of Bowmaster, Shildred, and Talion. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of love. Those, those are chunks of life at a time. So while they're, you know, for a slightly different reason, but like Bowmaster and Shildred, I mean, that's, you're you're bolting yourself every time you're drawing a, a like a card. Like that's, that's pretty wild. Turns out like a lot of these matchups, they're all about drawing cards. If you're doing that a lot, like, making people use their life as a resource when they don't typically or they're like their deck is built to not care about it where they can just like you know fetch away and spend their life on like a fire covenant or whatever like all these different ways to use up your life that you don't care about uh you know tapping that ancient two in every turn putting burden counters on the one ring those especially if you have a flying six six can really add up and like we mentioned like tivid i think was a big a big win was Bowmasters and cards like Lotho, even though it didn't tend to do that well here. But like jamming, jamming Bowmasters are like instep Bowmaster into like a time twister, which is a, a lot of the Tivid decks tend to be on because it, you know, doesn't fuel breaches and, and lets you just kill a player often with uh, that uh, Bowmaster. Um, that's a pretty powerful play. And again, just like a way to do that with a shielded in play too. <laughs> that's a lot of freaking damage. And Talion is a, pretty powerful like draw like piece it's a pretty powerful engine that again like incidentally hits their life so it's not because like singularly one card it's that that now there's a multitude of these cards so again it's a grindy piece but also shortens the game Mm. and if we're if we're going to that uh you know evolution of 75 minute rounds the the name of the game is you got to win like you have to close the game out like shockingly magic players can't just draw (laughs) is to win the game so something that maybe seem obvious that like you don't really get a tangible advantage when you play something like let's say you you play a graph figure stage or a similar effect that shuts down somebody else's value to do something that doesn't equate to any sort of furthering of your game plan really other than just like slowing people down but like incidental life loss to your opponents is a thing that when you get it, even though it doesn't feel that valuable, it is something that changes the game that doesn't get undone when somebody psych riffs it or kills it. It's like a real thing that matters. Your life total matters, believe it or not, especially in this ad nauseum format. And um, it can be easy, like Eric was saying, like these don't seem that crazy, um, but like they add up. And Talion is a card that we don't really have a lot of data on for this quarter, but it might be one 
that we see uh, in the next quarter end up in a lot of the 99. And we already did just see a top four uh, very large event. Uh, so it may even end up on this list. I don't expect it as a commander, but I wouldn't be surprised if it becomes kind of a staple of these like grindier Esper plus decks to run in their 99. Okay, and then the one of the bigger winners of this quarterly update with 20 top 16s, 85 entries for a 23.53% conversion rate. We have Kenan Bonder Prodigy, who has been kind of pushing its way up. It, it was kind of like, low top five and then kind of like mid top five and then i think it was four last update i want to say behind tivit and Ajila and uh our number one and now it's here at number two um it's been in a real hot streak of just like top four after top four multiple wins happening and it's interesting because a lot of the things we talked about as weaknesses like with bow orcs bowmaster of like can any mana dork survive in this bowmaster world um, Kenan says yes, it absolutely can. I think we discussed uh, Kenan like even a while back before we uh, interviewed Wounded, but it was like I, I kept saying like Kenan's a cracked card. Like it's it's so ridiculous. Yeah. Like just it, so busted, and that's like index. That's not yeah, as the commander. easily the most played commander in the ninety nine of yeah. of decks right now. Yeah, so it it's just one of those effects where it has a multitude ways of win. It translates dorks. And so, again, we've discussed this. You know, people kind of poo-poo on dorks, you know, and green's bad and all this stuff. Well, I don't know. Kenan's in second. Kenan's in second. And what it does is it breaks dorks. You know, it breaks dorks. It breaks mana rocks. So it has two different plans. So, again, if things align, if the creature plan isn't where you want to go, because let's say something like the Orcish Bowmaster is just going to gobble up your things if you're able to get like a cannon out. And then your rocks immediately are disgusting. You know, they just mm. produce an additional mana. They do some pretty wild stuff with that. So again, it's it has those two lines. It obviously has like all these kind of like big flip-ish like kind of creatures that it has. It doesn't necessarily have to go super deep into it. It runs cards like you know, perplexing chimera. It obviously has like Nyx Bloom Ancient. It obviously has a Floyd Winner, those type of things. Uh, Holebreaker Horror. So mm. it has these cards that are pretty groundbreaking, like not groundbreaking, but like just it just shatters the the game yeah. when they enter. And obviously, you can cheat them into play. It's a very good the One Ring deck. Um, I definitely think the best the One Ring deck. I, I feel like, like in terms of we, we talked about this with Wounded, of just like your at this point the only seedborn deck to be found uh in the top 10 that is very broken enough um players like wounded have run, started running manamo to be able to untap their one ring and be able to do it extra with seedborn muse it goes very 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 broken i i would say probably gained about as much as it at lost i guess maybe more in, ter- in terms of like what lord of the rings did for it with both bowmasters and the one ring and blah 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 i think it is a deck that we've seen start to be built a little bit differently. Like a lot of the earlier Kinnon builds of even earlier this year were maybe more on the proactive slant. Like we, when we talked with Wounded, he talked about he thinks there's about four ways that you can build Kinnon. Um, I think we're seeing more of the reactive kind of controlly sandbagging your activations. Kinnon decks tend to do a little bit better um, because if you play it like Winota, it can be Winota if you're just 
I'm going to jam the cannon as early as I can. I'm going to try to flip it as early as I can. Like, I think a lot of the strength of the deck is it is a powerful politic deck that almost benefits from how kind of awkward its win cons can be. Even when you've won the game with Kinnon, you essentially or have essentially won the game with Kinnon. You're can often be like two or three turns from away from actually winning um, because you have to get these pieces that are kind of hard to tutor for. And you're just building this, you know, critical mass of advantage that makes it really, really hard for your opponents to win. Um, but doesn't necessarily threaten to win at any given moment. Yeah, and again, it, it has access to blue, so that's what's going to really help the deck out to just navigate these games to like aid in its political ability. Like if this deck was, let's say, red green, and it like let's say Kennen does exactly what Kennen does, it would not have that ability because it would be looked at as uh, the bad guy deck. You know, because it would be like super fast and it plays dockside extortionist. Yeah. And- that's blah, 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 blah. so huge for me when I because we talked about before I played a lot of Rogsai, but lately I've been playing a lot of Kinnon. And the political power of being a blue player who doesn't play Dockside and Underworld Breach and being able to say, like, hey guys, there's a red player, watch out. They're gonna do Dockside or Breach things. Like I've had so many times where I'm just like player cast at Dockside, and that gets me more political power than almost anything I can say. Of just like Okay, this guy has a dock side. That's scary. How do we help out, you know, the 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 control player of the bunch, which is usually the Kinnon or, you know, something similar. And uh that's a really powerful aspect of a deck that isn't in the 99. Like it's it's almost like out just this outside of the game effect that you get when you aren't um a deck that's like just trying to jam wins very quickly and your commander doesn't seem threatening. Genuinely, I think Kinnon costing two makes him seem less scary, even though he should cost like four or five mana. He's such a broken card, but he only costs two mana. No one wants to force a will of Kinnon. They maybe should in, in some scenarios because a lot of what he does that's like the high upside play is the activations, which are very hard to interact with unless you run like sort of narrow cards like Containment Priest. Yeah, so... Instead of like listening to me like drone on about <laughs> Kenan and how great it is, you can actually watch our interview with Wounded, mm-hmm. who is a savage Kenan player, and uh, they go into really great in depth and a very eloquent way. They speak about it, so eloquence. Sorry, uh, that interview is a little bit easier to digest, and we're just kind of you know not going in super deep dives in these decks and just more like quick synopsis, like mm. bright rapid brain fire. So. If we missed some intricate detail about your favorite deck on here, don't, uh, you know, let us know in the comments because honestly, it's just, you know, like we don't have the time to go over all 10 decks in that way. It's just, it's not equitable for the podcast. I I mainly want to touch on if there's something that really sticks out, like we've talked about, like it's notable that a deck like Kenan that seemed like it was about to get a lot worse got better, I I feel like. And, And touching on that, I think the it was almost unrelated other than like they got the one ring and that's broken um because they just started building differently like chimera wasn't as much of a staple in the last update and it is a lot more i think just the less flippy the deck is the better it it seems like it's doing and it recently got a side grade uh, in flesh duplicate that i i immediately i was playing with the car last night and i was immediately like i'm i this is so much better than fimage because it's so easy to lose a fimage in a in a 
like whatever your Fimage thing is on in like a Bowmaster world or just anything that can target can just get rid of your whatever copied Grom or whatever it is. Um, so I, I really like that card. I think we're going to see potentially that and Fimage being ran together because just the two mana clone is really strong. I think we might see that in, in decks that are choosing to run one of those effects going into the next update. But um, yeah, I kind of expect Kennen to just stay around this level. I don't know that it's going to overtake our number one. Uh, I do think if you dive into the stats that you could argue that in the larger events right now, around like 100-ish plus, that Kennen seems to be doing uh, the best. In events around the 64 to 100 mark, that our number one is definitely number one. And uh, that is with another big gap. I mean, if we were doing a tier list, this is the S tier deck. And uh, with 27 top 16s, 122 entries, 22.13% conversion rate, that is Krom, Ludovic's Opus with Timna the Weaver, also known as Blue Farm, TNK, Sands, Green, Breach, the good stuff deck. It's still here. <laughs> um, it hasn't changed a lot other than now you can run some of the Lord of the Rings cards in it. You can... Um, Bowmaster is pretty good with Timna, as we expected. Uh, it's pretty good against Timna. It's pretty good against a lot of the good cards that draw cards. You can run Lotho in here as a way to generate mana advantage in a way that um, some of the decks, like we mentioned with like Najila, it's maybe a little bit tougher on your mana base. But in Blue Farm and Tivit, you're kind of just developing those colors early on anyways because it's pretty frequent that you want to cast an early Timna. So fetching to get white and black isn't that rough on your mana base uh, or your early decision making it's still here I think we're moving a little bit away from the Bosch and Roll run a whole bunch of Staxi-ish creatures we're not quite on like jamming Containment Priest in the deck um, we have seen people run Boromir to some uh, result uh, either alongside with or in favor of Lavinia um, kind of uh, the same effect for the most part and some decks are choosing the one to run the one ring. Other than that, it definitely has the same game plan. It's winning the same ways. And it is drawing cards and winning tournaments. So another uh, innovation by Comedian is uh, running like Talion. He was discussing about playing like Talion and the one ring and being a Nauseless like a Nauseless version of the deck, but ultimately played at Nauseam. It's just too good. Yeah, I think it ran ad nauseum over the one ring. At least that's the way the deck was reported. Um, and then, but still ran Talion. So, you know, again, just another payoff. I, Talion's a weird card. I don't. I can't. But that doesn't feel like a card that's printed in standard. Like it's it, it, it very feels strange. Really like a commander card printed in a standard. Like that set. one definitely seems like it would have been like the guy in the precon. And then they would have put like one of the random fairy ones that, you know, gives you a fairy or whatever into standard. Yeah, it, I don't know that 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 again, here we go. Blue card gets <laughs> whenever your opponent breathes, you get to get you get fully rewarded. Like it's just, yeah, we're kind of saying like uh, it almost swapping. Uh, it's like the new playable, actually playable notion thief in a uh, Bowmaster world. Like it's the it's like the only thing. I love Notion Thief so much going into last quarter. And man, is that card horrendous when the the ETB of the Bowmaster just kills it. I 
it, it took one experience of that happening for me to just know that the the card was no longer playable. Um, but uh, Italian, I think it's like a three three or a three four, and I don't think that's going to be nearly as much of a problem for for that draw engine. It's a good attacker in the air too. Like it yeah, pre- it can pressure at nauseum lives again. Um, like we alluded to earlier with the Shieldred and the Italian in something like Tibet. Again, it helps close the gap and pressure life totals. So while you're not necessarily pressuring the entire table at once, you might be pressuring the announcing player, which you limit their ability to execute their game plan, and you might put them in a more linear one-dimension pathway. So that's something to think about. But there was this notion that Blue Farm was like, couldn't win. like, And this was fairly recent. This was in like the last like two months. Like, it's track record's bad. I keep telling everybody, and I don't even... Like, I have Blue Farm build. I play Blue Farm occasionally. It's not even my favorite deck. It's not even, like... I like Rockside more, but I'm also very realistic when it comes to this. Blue Farm, until... until Like, Kennen's on a huge upswing, but until Kennen has as many wins as Blue Farm, or more, and keeps putting up people in the top 16, I don't know what else to say. Like... Blue Farm just keeps doing the thing. Like, also, too, like, it's not like Blue Farm has, like, you know, like a sub 20% conversion rate. It's, mm. like, pretty high for 122 players. So you compare it to, like, Pivot that had 110 players in this last quarter at 16.3, you know, 36%. That's still a pretty good conversion rate versus the number of players that played it. Like, yeah, I think you know, it actually put- swung up a little bit because it, that was like a complaint of the deck in previous quarters that it was like hovering closer to that, like 19%, like a sub 20% conversion rate because it was so popular and not pulling its weight in terms of like carrying that popularity still. Um, but now it and Kennen are the only like pretty popular, like really popular decks that have that above conversion rate and like divot, which you talked about had like 23% or something last time. So that being super popular, big drop of like, 7% conversion rate just down the drain uh, similar-ish with Najila. What if I told you that Blue Farm is the best performing deck in September? That's believable. 13 top 16s at 27.8% conversion rate. That's, yeah, that's, that's pretty ballin'. And, and Ken is right behind it. That, yeah. You know, just for a full troll effect, it's at 26.32% conversion rate at like 10 top 16s like Obviously, you know, you get one month of sample size of decks versus mm. an entire three months. But there is some new familiar facer, faces on for September. September had some some new sauce in there. Yeah, so I just, I don't know what the thing about, like, the, the Blue There's Farm something case. about it that we're just like, I mean, because this was like a huge meme in the community, like, a year, year and a half, two years ago of, like, yeah, Blue Farm should probably be the best deck, but it can't win can't win a tournament now it's like it still wins tournaments and people are just like ah blue farm's not that good like what is the metric for that good like if you want to say that you don't necessarily think that the stats that we focus in on and how we interpret them is like the ideal way to look at cdh stats i won't disagree with you but you should have some sort of metric i think included in what you're doing and it's hard to have a metric that doesn't have blue farm at the very least as a top three deck in the format, probably top two. Um, and I don't see how you can have that and then say like, nah, the deck's not that good. 
you think it's boring, you don't like it, you, uh, you don't like high color piles, that's one thing. The point of this series should be to give you a good idea of what a CDH tournament like breaks down looking like. So if you go into an event, you should know, hey, Blue Farm is probably going to be uh, a good option for my opponents to be running that uh, I should be very wary of because it has, despite being the num biggest entries yet again, it has a high conversion rate. It's a very powerful deck. It's very popular and good. You should know, hey, I got to watch out for Blue Farm. Hey, I got to watch out for Kennen. Hey, maybe I don't have to watch out for Tivit as much now. Um, and just not necessarily say like, oh, Blue Farm's number one again. Everybody goes leave a Blue Farm. But you should go into an event knowing you're going to see the deck. And if especially if you want to win a tournament, you're going to have to beat the deck probably in like four or five of your, say, seven or whatever games, depending on the size of your event. You're probably going to face it in like at least a third, maybe even a half of your uh, pods that you play in. It's, it is interesting because other countries do have slightly different metagames and popularity of commanders over there. And those tend to reflect in their tournament results. Like, you know, we, we you know, I joke about Corvo a lot, but Corvo shows up quite a bit in Brazil. Like, it's just, it's almost always in top 16 in Brazil. And they have pretty big tournaments, you know. So it's one of those things where I just think that, like, I'm, I'm wondering is the um, American meta mm -hmm. starting to, and, and I'm going to say North America. So the North American meta is starting to be like, you know, here are the top, whatever, you know, 10-ish decks. Or, and I know there's tons of people who play different things because that's what they own. That's what they yeah. show up with. That's what they like. Ultimately, we are playing Commander at the end. So, you know, but like the tournament grinders who are like, I'm trying to play the best thing that gives me an opportunity to win the game. Mm -hmm. you're, you're starting to see that kind of compile towards the upper echelons, the decks, yeah. because as you said, we had a big jump from like seven to 12 to like, you know, and now we moved up to like in the twenties in terms of representation of conversion. And Matt, can you allude to actually why we go by the conversion rates? So yeah, we've kind of just like agreed sort of as a community, like the real bar of performance and like a large event like this is top 16. I, I would say most people would agree. If you show up to an event, that is your kind of first goal other than maybe like this is your very first event, maybe win a game is maybe your goal. But like in terms of like you had a successful tournament run, it's top 16. That's that's the goal. That's really like making the cut, you know, and then we could look at and maybe we will um, maybe over the year might be a little bit better because we have such a small amount of numbers looking at like top four and wins is usually like. You know, there's like 10 decks or whatever that get tied with like two wins or something. Um, so I think looking at actual wins, just performance dependent, it, it feels like it, that's maybe where the most variance we see is. And then looking at like top fours, maybe a little bit more. But I think top 16s, we can mostly agree broadly, are um, the main threshold you want to be able to meet for a deck because like that, that is success. So some players, podcasts, uh, whatever might look at something like the win rate of a deck in an event. Um, that can really skew the numbers in favor of decks that almost top 16 and don't quite, and then punish decks that top 16 a lot and then lose at top 16. You definitely, I think, looking at a deck that top 16s and then loses in top 16s and holding that against them is just a terrible way to, to look at it when we can agree like, especially as events get larger, top 16 is going to be like, you make money at, at that point. Like 
this is the point where it's like you've done something and maybe eventually we'll look at top 32s if we get to like really big events um and we might have to adjust how we how we look at things but for now i definitely don't want to look at win rate uh especially like um we talked about this a little bit before on air like the way you value wins draws and losses doesn't really equate that well from like uh, a standard event where you can look at the win rate of a deck like um right red black evoke <laughs> otherwise known as scam and really get to just see like the deck had a whatever 56 percent win rate that tells a lot of the story you can look at top 16 after that and kind of see how it might match up against certain things and struggle in some places um but that tells a lot of the story uh here when we talked about wounded this came up a lot of like you'll win like three games or two games and then you'll just intentional draw like all the way up to top 16 um, and it just like it, I, I feel like looking at win rate is a very skewed view into it, especially if you don't factor in a lot of these things that can punish or reward decks for subpar performances or actually, you know, getting punished for a really good performance. Yeah. And I think it just it keeps it clean because the if the metric of a tournament is top 16, because that's how the placements go for these 64 plus events. Right. But like we can't keep moving the goalpost just to have like these different like qualifiers for these decks and like it can, when you change the, the metric that you want to look at for how a deck performs, it opens you up to just leaning into your biases of saying like, well, this time, uh, because I really like Obnixilis, we're going to make it down to the top 16 decks or whatever. Like cool that Obnixilis performed well. Um, uh, or if we change it to win, especially if you change it to wins, or top fours, you're looking at like a whole different list with a whole different breakdown for the most part. Blue Farm still ends up on top, but uh, it can really change things. And I don't want to say that top 16s don't count and top fours are all that matters because I don't really think that's the case. And it's also like a crazy unrealistic way to view a view the game. If you only think of top fouring as I had a success here, I think you're going to like be kind of miserable. And also, I just don't think that's realistic. It's hard to top 16 there's value there and it means you're one game away from finals. Like I, th- I think that is absolutely a bar that is worth having set for at least until we have some better way to analyze this nonsense format that we all choose to play. So yeah, keep in mind, there's tons of factors that go into this. Let us know down below. What do you think is going to be the big winner in the next quarterly update? If you're going to be in an event, let me know what you're going to be playing. If you can come to top deck and you see either of us absolutely come yell at us, say hi. Thank you to Eminence for sponsoring and getting us there. Big shout out to you guys um, and for liking this channel and believing in it and uh, making this awesome software that lets us get all this data to make videos like this. I think next time we're going to be diving into some of the um, recent shakeups in CDH events. We're going to be touching on um, Eminence's circuit that they're going to be have going, which is crazy. I wanted to talk about it in this episode because I'm super hyped for it. But we absolutely don't have time. We're already way over time. You probably hear children yelling in the background. I can't help it. And yeah, so next time, look at that. We're also going to be talking about, maybe not in the next episode, but sometime soon, one of Eric's favorite topics, which is uh, the the non-North America metas. Diving into like what's going on in Japan, what's going on in Brazil, because it's wild and crazy over there. And it's relevant. And like, just because it's not happening on Eminence doesn't mean it's not a real event. You know, they're having huge events over there. There's, there's interesting stuff happening. And if you love spicy deck lists, you absolutely don't want to miss that episode because they are cracked out over there. <laughs> it's insane. So thank you so much for watching. If you enjoyed this video, let us know down below. Let us know what you want us to talk about next. 
let us know what we got wrong even though we just used stats i don't know how we could have got this wrong but let us know how you interpreted the stats thank you so much for watching and as always go play cdh See ya.